Please take your Bibles, if you would, and open them to Hebrews chapter 7. If you do not have a Bible, there is one in the pew rack in front of you. Page 1004, 1005 will be the section that we'll be looking at this morning. This is the third in a four-part series on Christ, our mediator. Now, we've already looked at the fact that Christ is our great priest. He is the one who goes before us in order to make the way possible for us to come to God. He is also our great teacher, as we saw last week, the one who instructs us in every way so that we know what is the truth about him and the truth about ourselves. We're going to see today that he is our great king. And as Dave was saying earlier, it's a theme that we don't often focus on. Unfortunately, for whatever reason, we tend to think of Jesus a little bit more in his incarnational humiliation than in his regal glorification. We tend to think of him as the baby that was sent to earth to be the very incarnation of God, but in weakness and humiliation in the flesh. But you'll recall that after his crucifixion and burial, resurrection and ascension, he now awaits to return to judge the quick and the dead, as we studied this morning in our Sunday school class on the Apostles' Creed. He is the one who awaits the great and glorious day of his return, and it will not be in humiliation, but it will be in great triumph. I was reading a book recently called The Beauty of the King. And I was reminded of the fact that that given our heritage, even in this country, which is certainly not one that seems favorably disposed towards monarchy, in fact, we just celebrated earlier this month the rejection, rebellion, and disposition of that particular institution, we don't think much of kings. But throughout most of the rest of human history and in many other places around the world, The king is a person that you look to because they represent the glory of the nation. The king or the queen, when they see, when they're seen presented before the people, it is not in casual attire. Uh, They're wearing the crown jewels of the nation. They are not unlike Aaron was before the people of Israel when he was wearing the ephod, when he was was wearing the umen and thummim, when he was presenting himself before the people in glorious majesty. And so when we think about our returning king, who is also our priest, who we'll see next week is also our servant, who has been our prophet, we really need to have a fuller picture of who he is in all of his glory, in all of his beauty. You know, men and women worshipped the king. Men and women saw the king as beautiful, saw the king as glorious. Men were willing to ride into battle, sometimes with odds very much stacked against them, for the glory of the king. That's why we resonate with speeches like from Henry V. That's why we resonate with speeches like in Braveheart when they're going to go in and fight the battle. That's why there's something about the king riding out in front of you on his horse, wearing the colors, bearing the standard, holding up his sword, that makes you want to get behind that because there's glory in it. And we've so utterly emasculated and and made diminutive Christ in our thinking and even in modern day Protestant evangelicalism that what I'm going to share with you today might be a stretch for some of us to understand. But let's stretch. 
It's the meat that the author talked about last week that the milk drinkers weren't ready for, but he's going to force feed it anyway. You need meat. Here's the meat. Here's what he wants to tell them about Jesus, about that great mediator, that great teacher. He is also that great king. And all of chapter 7 will be studied today, so that's a, a long section. It's 28 verses. Originally, in the order of service, I was going to have Frank read that chapter, and then mercifully, I let him off the hook. <laughs> Midweek, I said, ah, just read Psalm 110. If you um, can think about it this way, uh, Hebrews 7 opens up like one of those movies where they show you the final scene at the beginning, or one of the books where the very end is explained first, and then you go back to the beginning and realize how you got there. In fact, some of the most famous movies of all time are set up that way. Some of the most famous works of literature are set up that way. There's something compelling about it because in the opening scene, you see something and you spend the whole rest of the movie or the whole rest of the book answering, how do we get there? You know that there's something out there. You know there's something you're trying to get to. At the beginning of this scene in Hebrews chapter 7, that's, that's what you've got. You've got this prefiguring of the the glory of the king, priest, prophet, Jesus in this enigmatic uh, character named Melchizedek, a person who only appears three times in the Holy Scripture. And so as we turn our attention to that this morning, I'm going to ask you, perhaps even more than usual, to dedicate your focus to this chapter of God's Word because as the author to the Hebrews admits... This isn't necessarily the easiest material to understand, but I believe that if we take it all at once in the complete unit of thought, we'll be able to see that it actually unfolds quite simply, and you'll come away not only with a whole chapter of Hebrews under your belt, but with a greater appreciation for the glory of Christ as revealed in the monarchy of the Savior. So please follow along as I read Hebrews chapter 7. This is the word of the Lord. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who receive the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, 
receives tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things were spoken belonged to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witness of him. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and than for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. This is God's inerrant, inspired, authoritative word. Two big ideas for you this morning from chapter 7. The first one, 
the superiority of King Melchizedek, second, the superiority of King Jesus. The superiority of King Melchizedek in verses 1 to 10, the superiority of King Jesus in verses 11 to 28. If you are somebody who marks your Bible, I would encourage you to prepare yourself. Make ready thine instruments of marking, because I'm going to draw attention to certain words in the text that in the original language give us signposts for structuring our understanding of it. It lets us know as readers when an idea has been completed, like bookends on a shelf, you know, everything that's supposed to fit in between. And the first of these happens right here in verse 1 and in verse 10, and it's the word met. Verse 1 and verse 10, it's the word met. It wraps up that first unit of thought, and that is talking about the superiority of King Melchizedek. Now, both of these words are attached to the same subject, which is Abraham, the person that Melchizedek met. So let's go through the text, and we'll talk about the superiority of Melchizedek as a king. Verse 1 begins like this, for this Melchizedek, king of Salem. May I stop there for a moment? He is first and foremost the king of Salem. Were he to be carrying a business card and offer it to you, you would take it and you would notice, oh, you are Melchizedek, king of Salem. That's your job description. That's your title. This is a royal, regal encounter. This is not just meeting anybody else. This is meeting a king during a time when many kings were meeting together both for war and for distributing the spoils of such war. We don't know where he came from, but he appears on the scene, the last scene, as it were, in the story, pointing forward to the ultimate Melchizedek. There's something going on here between this king that we know nothing about and this man Abraham that up until this point in the book of Genesis where it's recorded has been the primary figure, the primary recipient of God's promise. This king Melchizedek comes onto the scene and he is also described, please notice it, as a priest of the Most High God. Now he was a priest before there were priests. He didn't go to priest school. He was not a Levite, as we'll come to see over and over again in this chapter. He wasn't wearing priestly garments. He was a priest of Abraham's God, a priest of Yahweh, a priest of the the one true living God, the most high God. And he had a way of going before that God directly in the same way that some other people were able to before the priesthood was established. Think, for example, of Noah. Noah knew what to do when God called him. Noah knew that there were clean animals and unclean animals. Have you ever wondered why? It's not because of the law of Moses. That wouldn't happen for many, many years. When the ark finally comes to rest on Mount Ararat and the waters dissipate, when he comes out of the ark, what does he do? He offers a burnt offering and sacrifice to God. He was the priest, not only of his family, but really of the entire world at that point, which comprised itself of eight survivors. What about someone like Job? How did Job know what to do? Long before the priesthood was established, Job had a relationship with God. He would offer sacrifices not only for himself, but also for his children, lest any of them sinned and had not made it right with God. In the same way, Melchizedek is one of these kinds of priests, completely independent of the system, 
but yet somebody who is connected intimately to God. And so he is described here as the priest of the Most High God, and it is him who, here's our word, met Abraham. And he met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings. Now, if there is a phrase in Scripture that makes you want to do some further digging, it would be a phrase like the slaughter of the kings. If you're looking for a good book title for your novel in the future, Slaughter of the Kings, may I recommend that? I would walk across the store to look at that. What a great phrase. Genesis 14, Abraham is called into action. Why? Because his nephew Lot, who was typically known for making bad decisions, had taken up residence in the city called Sodom. And Sodom and Gomorrah and several other cities for 13 years had been under the authority of some other kings in the area. And they finally said, enough is enough. It's time for revolution. And so Sodom had its own kind of like Sodom tea party. They decided they're going to rebel. And so they begin going up against these other kings. And they fight them and they lose. They lose badly. In fact, the other kings crush them in the open field. And they start running away. And many of their men, in fact, fall into the tar pits, the tar sands of the area, and get sucked down to become fossils that we discover later. And yet, when Abraham finds out about it, and he realizes that his own nephew, Lot, has been taken captive by these pagan kings and all of his family and all of his possessions, Abraham mounts up and he says, I'm going to go and I'm going to fight. And Abraham had his own standing army. I don't know what you picture when you think of Abraham, but you got to picture a person who had a massive amount, not only of wealth, but also people. And if I'm not mistaken, 318 of the men who had been born in his own household and trained as soldiers, they go out and they defeat these kings. And they bring back all of the loot and all of the people, and they rescue everybody. And there's this scene in Genesis 14 where all of the possessions and the people and the animals are all being numbered and identified. And out of nowhere, Melchizedek shows up. And Melchizedek blesses Abraham. Now, just so the full story is understood, Abraham is going to give a tenth of everything to Melchizedek. And then the king of Sodom says, hey, give me back the people. You can keep the stuff. And Abraham says, I don't want any of your stuff. I'm not going to keep a thread. I'm not going to keep a a sandal strap. I don't want anybody saying that the king of Sodom made me wealthy. You can have it all back. 10% of it, though, the tithe went to Melchizedek. And here's how the story unfolds. Look what he says. After coming back from the slaughter of the kings, he blesses him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth, a tithe of everything. He's identifying this Melchizedek. He goes back to that episode, which by the way, the Hebrew Christians would have known because remember, they're Hebrew Christians. They were very much aware of the Old Covenant, the Old Testament. In fact, they were so aware of it that some of them were being tempted to go back to their Judaism. They hadn't realized yet that they could abandon Judaism, that Judaism is extinct. It's not necessary anymore. All of their ceremonies, all of their rituals, all the civil law, it had all been completely fulfilled in Christ and done away with. The only thing that remains is the moral law to which this author continually calls them back. But they would have known this story very, very well. And so the author reminds them that, notice in verse 2, that Melchizedek, he is first by translation of his name. 
What does that mean? He, he says literally his name Melchizedek means this. It means king of righteousness. It's made up of two Hebrew words. Melech, which is king, and Zedek, which is righteousness. So he is king of righteousness. That phrase, king of righteousness, is the way you would translate his name, Melchizedek. So, number one, he is king of righteousness, and then also he happens to be the king of a city called Salem. This is the same city that would later come to be known as Jerusalem, Jerusalem. So here he is, the king of Jerusalem, a pagan city that several generations later, the sons of Abraham would come in and destroy during the conquest. But here the tape gets reversed, and this is an amazing situation where Abraham, in whose loins, as they say, is the entire nation of Israel, submits himself to this king of Salem, this king of Jerusalem. And this man blesses Abraham. Now, notice what he is, not only the king of righteousness, but because the word Salem means peace, he is the king of peace. And he is, without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. Now, I know that might seem a little bit challenging to understand at first, but let me explain it to you. It's, it's actually quite simple. When the author says this, he is not referring to Melchizedek as being a miraculous deity of some kind, somebody who has literally no father or mother or genealogy or beginning or end. There is only one being who has no beginning or end, and that is God, and we know he's not God. So who is he? Well, this is a Hebrew idiom. When, when he says he has no father, mother, or genealogy, that's a Hebrew way of saying he's a nobody. I mean, he doesn't have any, any line that you could look back to. He, he doesn't have any descendants that are important. He, he's a nobody. He's, he's what I call a walk-on. You know how, like, in college you can get um, a scholarship to play? Or if you think you're good enough, you can just walk on. So during tryouts, there's an open call, and if you think you're good enough and you actually pass the trial, you can become part of the team even though no one actually called you up. No one went to scout you. No one gave you a scholarship. That's kind of like Melchizedek. He's a bit of a walk-on here. And he just shows up. He's got no family lineage, no heritage. He is not like Abraham that way. And by saying he's got no beginning and no end, that's another Hebrew idiom for saying that in this story, we don't know where he came from and we don't know where he goes. We don't know where he came from. It doesn't say that Melchizedek came from this location and then he passed through this checkpoint and met up with Abraham. It just means he showed up out of nowhere. And about as quickly as he showed up, he disappears. He's just there for a minute and then he's gone. That's all that means. I've just saved you reading 157 pages of commentaries that I did on your behalf because I love you and I want to make sure that we understand this. But it's really that simple. Otherwise, he would be God. There's no other way to understand this. But please notice, he also, though, resembles or is a type of the Son of God. By saying he resembles, it's a, it's a typology. Melchizedek is a type of Christ. He, he prefigures what would come. He is the human shadow of the divine reality. So he resembles the Son of God and continues as a priest forever. 
Now, if there was ever a time where you might say, well, what about the word forever? Doesn't that seal the deal that this person was divine? The answer is no, because again, in the way that the Hebrew scriptures are written, that word forever really means uninterrupted. It's the same way that it's actually used. It's the same word in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible that is used in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1, 12, and 14. So when you look at this idea of forever or for all time, it means uninterrupted. In fact, if you go into the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures, and you look up Psalm 110, verse 4, which was read to you earlier, the Greek word for forever there is different than the Greek word for forever here. I'll back up. The Hebrew is translated into Greek using a different word in Psalms than here. Because in Psalms, it really means forever. Here, it just means uninterrupted when talking about Melchizedek. So, Melchizedek comes on the scene out of nowhere. He's got no lineage. He's got no important last name. He is a righteous king who is a priest of the Most High God. He is over the city of Salem. And he has a ministry that resembles that of Christ, meaning that it will be an uninterrupted priesthood, not based on human lineage. Verse 4, see how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, who is the most important man in the scene, gave a tenth of the spoils. I mean, this is exceptionally important. He calls him Abraham, the patriarch. He's Abraham, the, the top dog, the number one guy, the man of the promise. Abraham shouldn't be doing this sort of thing. This is ridiculous. Abraham should be the one demanding that people pay homage to him. Remember how God says, you go out for a walk. Everywhere you walk and everything you see, it's yours. If you were given that kind of promise, it might prompt you to be a little bit proud, wouldn't you say? Imagine that somebody says to you, I'm going to give you your entire neighborhood. Everywhere you walk, everything you see, it's yours. And you go walking up onto your neighbor's lawn, and the guy says, get off my lawn. And you say, hey, you don't understand. It's all mine. This could have been how Abraham would talk, but he doesn't. He goes and he receives from Melchizedek a blessing, even though he's the patriarch. But not only that, he gives him, look at it, a tenth of the spoils. He gives him something that indicates he's the superior. The tenth was a tithe. That's all tenth means. Verse 5, and those descendants of Levi who receive the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, their brothers. Now, let's just explain what that means for a moment. Because he gave a tithe, it's going to cause the person who's hearing this to question, why would he give him a tithe? I thought only the Levites could receive tithes. And so the author says, that's right. You, you, you have identified that correctly. In fact, in the law, in the civil law, the Levites were not only allowed, but required to take a tenth. Now, bear with me for a moment, because some of you might be wondering about how this relates to giving and whatnot. You might say, well, I grew up believing I should tithe because of this, and that's wonderful. If you want to tithe, you're more than welcome to do that. I don't think Scripture mandates any particular amount of giving, just that it has to be generous and cheerful. But here's the thing. In the Old Covenant system, you gave three tithes. Ten percent of your wealth was given to support the Levitical system. 
10% in addition, another 10% of your wealth was given so that you could celebrate all of the feasts and festivals. I've mentioned this before, but consider it. You were by law required to take 10% of your gross salary and blow it on some huge parties throughout the year. I mean, if there is anything to bring back, let's bring that back. You want to tie, like, let's bring that. Imagine, like, in your family budget, 10% every month comes out for what? Parties. Just buy whatever you want. The best of it. Now, there was a third tithe, but this was collected only once every three years. It was another 10%, and that went to the poor. 10%, 10%, 10% divided by three. I did not do well in math in high school, but I believe that comes to 23 and a third percent. That's what you gave every year. So the 10% tithe that Abraham gives to Melchizedek is not unprecedented, but it would be confusing. And so the author describes for the people what it really means. He says, yes, it is true they are to receive this from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham, meaning they are equal to Abraham. That It makes sense for them to give it to the Levites, but it doesn't make sense for Abraham to give it to Melchizedek except for this explanation, verse 6, but this man who does not have his descent from them, the Levites, Melchizedek is not a Levite, therefore by law, right, he's not entitled, he received tithes from Abraham and blessed him. Both the receiving of tithes and the blessing indicates that Melchizedek is superior to Abraham. Because it was the greater one who blessed and the greater one who received tithes. Even though it was Abraham, look at verse 6, who had the promises. Abraham was the covenant recipient. And yet he gives tithes to Melchizedek. That's how great this man was. Verse 7, it is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. So just in case there's any confusion, he is saying that Melchizedek is superior. So verse 8 says, in the one case, tithes are received by a mortal man, the Levitical priests. But on the other case, by one of whom it is testified, this is back in Genesis, that he lives. What he's saying is that there is a contrast. There's a contrast between the receiving of tithes by the Levites, according to the law, and the receiving of the tithe by Melchizedek, who is a guy who just lives. What does that mean? It's confusing. What do you mean he just lives? It's again a reference to that Hebrew way of speaking, which means we, we don't really know anything about him except that he lives. He, he, he was, he's alive. He's in this narrative. The tithe goes to him, even though there doesn't appear to be any legal requirement. We don't know why. We don't know why other than that when the film ends we're going to see that he is a shadow of Christ. And so he just simply lives in the narrative. He's there. One might even say that Levi himself, and this is looking ahead really to the next point we're going to make, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. So, the way you understand this is that it's almost like Levi was paying tithes to Melchizedek, even though he's the one who's supposed to receive them. He's paying tithes to Melchizedek because he's still a future descendant of Abraham. 
Have you ever seen uh, what they call nesting dolls? Okay, sometimes they call them Russian dolls, but we don't like the Russians right now, so we won't call them that. Uh, no, I'm just joking. If you're Russian, we love you. It's just... Um, they're dolls, and you open up the, you, you pull them in half. They're kind of creepy. You, you open them up, and there's like another smaller one inside, and then you open up that one, and there's a smaller one inside, and so on and so forth. That's the, that's the principle here. So it's like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Levi, and then all the way down, Aaron. And, and Aaron is the high priest. And so Aaron is inside Levi, inside Joseph, inside Isaac, inside Jacob, inside... Abraham, and Abraham tithes. So it's like the whole Levitical system just submitted themselves to the king of Salem. And what God is saying is that if you're really wrapped up in your Jewish system, if you're really focused on Judaism and Zionism, and you're all hopeful of the recapitulation of this system, you're going to be sorely disappointed because it's been blown apart by the fact that Christ has come to fulfill it all. There's no more need to latch onto it. These Hebrew believers, they were tempted, drawn in, because 70 AD hasn't happened yet. The temple is still there. It hasn't been destroyed. The priests are still active, and they're being sucked in, this gravitational pull to their old religion. And the author to the Hebrews wants to cut that cord and remind them that it's all been fulfilled in Christ. Because... Even Levi was in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek, here's our word, met him, wraps up the thought. Now the superiority of Melchizedek quickly gives way to the superiority of Jesus. And again, if I might draw your attention to the actual words of the text, there are two points to be made here in the superiority of King Jesus. Number one is his perfection, that's in verses 11 to 19, and secondly, his promise in verses 20 to 28. Now, his perfection in verses 11 to 19 are bookended by, please notice in verse 11, the word perfection and the word law. And then in verse 19, the word law and the word perfect. And then down in verses 20 through 28, the word oath in verse 20 and the word oath in verse 28. So the superiority of King Jesus, second part of the sermon, Seen here, number one, in his perfection, number two, in his promise. Let's look at his perfection. Verse 11, now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under, the, under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise? Word that's actually used for resurrection in other places, interestingly enough, but what would have been the reason why would there need to be another priest if the law and the priests were adequate? This one, you'll notice, arose after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron. You see, it's very logical. The author is saying, turning his attention away from Melchizedek and onto Christ, why would there need to be another priest that rises up out of the order of Melchizedek, who was not a Levite, why would that be necessary if the Levitical system was adequate? This is logical. I'm just saying if the Levitical system was, was adequate, there wouldn't need to be another priest. It would all be fine. You wouldn't need a priest after the order of Melchizedek because you had a priest after the order of Aaron. Or, uh, well, Aaron and then Levi. You'd be fine. So he asked the question, and now like a good teacher, he asked the question, and now he wants to answer it. Why would there be another one? Verse 12. 
For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. Oh, brothers and sisters, this is so important. You see, the law is comprised of three particular aspects. There is the ceremonial law where the priests would go and they would go before the Lord and offer sacrifices for the people. Not all of which, by the way, were for sin. Many were for thanksgiving or other memorials. Then there was also the civil aspect of the law, which meant that you had to learn how to work together in this theonomy. It was, it was like their constitution, their government. And then there was the moral law, which was encapsulated in the Ten Commandments. Now, the ceremonial law is gone. The civil law is gone, but the moral law remains. The moral law was fulfilled in Christ, which is why we can still pray through the Ten Commandments which is why we still take those seriously as applicable to our lives as Christians. But I want you to notice here, there is a change in the other laws. Because when the new priesthood rolls in, it completely obliterates the old system that they were used to. And there is a new law that is now necessary. The old one has passed away. And and listen, this is easy for us to understand because we're living so far after the fact. But once again, please bring your mind back to the time of the writing. There is still in Jerusalem a temple. There is still a lot of ceremony. There are still priests. There is still blood being offered at the altar. It wasn't until 70 AD that that was destroyed. So these believers are looking at that existing structure and saying, are you telling me that's going to be destroyed? Are you telling me that's obsolete? It would not be very different than if we all took a field trip to Washington, D.C., and stood in front of the Capitol building, and somebody said, in a few years, this place is going to be raised. This is going to be completely brought down to the foundation. You'd say, what? That's impossible. Well, that's what they were thinking about the temple. And the author says, nah, you put your faith in Christ, because before long, this whole law, this whole system, the whole thing is going to be destroyed. And so, He carries on by saying this to them, for the one, verse 13, of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe. The one, by the way, is Christ. He belonged to the tribe of Judah, from which no one has ever served at the altar. (laughs) So there's got to be something going on here. There's got to be a higher law. There's got to be something independent from the normal system because both Melchizedek and Jesus don't need ceremony in order to mediate between themselves and God. They don't need a Levite. They don't need a priest. Melchizedek had no Jewish ancestry. Neither did Job, neither did Noah. And Jesus comes from the tribe of Judah, which was not the priestly tribe, but was the tribe from which one day the Lord said, would come a what? King. King, priest, prophet, Jesus Christ. So, for it is evident, verse 14, that our Lord was descended from Judah, we know that, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. (laughs) He says, no priests come from Judah except Jesus. And this, verse 15, this, this argument here, this logical progression of thought, the argument that the Levitical tribe was not enough, this becomes even more evident when another priest, this is Jesus, 
arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily or fleshly descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. What he's saying here is that it's even more clear that that Levitical priesthood was obsolete because Jesus rose up as a priest, not like Aaron, but like Melchizedek. And in both parts of our second half of the sermon here, when we're talking about his perfection or his promise, both of those parts are are reinforced by a quotation of Psalm 110. Psalm 110 is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. It's one of the most important psalms in all of the Psalter. And it is used to solidify in the eyes of the reader the deity of Christ. So Psalm 110 is quoted in both sections of this point. And so here he is, prepared to bring it out so that we are not going to make any mistake, is his indestructible life, post-resurrection, ascension, seated at the right hand of God. That's the vision of him as our priest. Verse 17, for it is witnessed of him, here's the quote from Psalm 110, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Awesome. The eschatological fulfillment of Psalm 110. It's all in Christ. It was all pointing to him in the first place. Isn't it awesome to think that one day we'll be able to gather around the throne of King Jesus and we will be able to understand all of those prophetic promises about him fulfilled in him? Part of the essence of the effulgence of his glory is going to be the fact that there is so much revealed to us that we only knew in part in this life, but now see in all of its full resplendent glory. Psalm 110 is one of those. And then just to drive the point home here as we wrap up this subsection, verse 18, for on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside, meaning it's annulled, it's canceled, it's changed. This former commandment, the the ceremonial law, the civil law, it's all set aside because it is weak and useless. For the law made nothing perfect. There is nobody who can come before the throne of God with boldness on account of the Mosaic law. Nobody. Aaron's sons tried that and fire came out and consumed them, burnt them to a crisp in front of everybody. And it was so offensive to God that Moses says to Aaron, don't you even weep for those boys. How dare you? They got what they deserved. Nobody comes boldly into the presence of God in the old covenant system. Only looking forward to what Christ has done for us can we come on account of him. He is perfect. He makes the law fulfilled. It's his act of righteousness, his passive righteousness imputed to us that make us acceptable to the Father. That's why he says, but on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Who's the greater hope that allows us to draw near to God? It's Jesus Christ. Isn't that exciting? Isn't that a wonderful thought? That you don't have to have any system or any ritual or any ceremony. That as we sung earlier today, Christ alone my hope is found. He is my strength. Everything I need is in Him. If that's the first time you've come to realize that, brother or sister in Christ, receive that today as a gift from God. 
as an eye-opening revelation to the fact that there is no religion or ceremony that will rescue you, save you, or make you more righteous, whether it's from the Jews or from yourself. Even your own personal rituals of cleansing and righteousness mean nothing in the end because the righteousness has already been secured for you in Christ. He is perfect. Now look at his promise. Verses 20 through 28, and again, our hinge word is the word oath that appears in 20 and 28. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. This oath giving is very important in the book. You remember it was a sign that God himself puts his own character on the line where he swears by his own name because there's nothing greater than him that what he said is going to happen, that it is true, it's reliable. He says that he established this priest by an oath. Verse 21, this one is made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. Again, quoting Psalm 110, verse 4. So who is the one speaking? The one speaking is Yahweh. The one speaking is God. And God says, by my name, by my oath, by my power and character, he is going to be made a priest forever. And that person is Christ. The superior priesthood with an oath from the living God. And this, verse 22, makes Jesus the guarantor you could say the executor, the one who is responsible for a better covenant. Don't you love that word, better? Everything's better in Christ. A better priest, a better prophet, a better teacher, a better king, a better sacrifice, a better covenant. Everything made better in him. Better language over and over again in the book of Hebrews it has been proven. It is, it is clearly better. Why? Because it does not end. It is eternal. He will be forever interceding for us. He lives to make intercession for us, as we're going to see soon. The former priests were many in number simply because they were prevented by death from continuing in their office. Why did we have so many priests? We had so many priests because the priests kept dying hey, we got a new priest. Why? Well, because the old guy's dead. There was no forever priests. You had to keep swapping them out. You had to keep raising up another generation of them because they would die off. And so this is a rather simple picture, and it helps the people to understand it. But unlike that, Jesus comes once and for all. He will never die again. He has risen from the dead, conquered sin and death and hell, and consequently... His rule and reign is permanent. Look at verse 24. He holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. It's an eternal priesthood. And consequently, verse 25, he is able then to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. If there is one truth that comes to the surface in this text that should be most encouraging to you today, that you go out of this place lifted up by and, and filled with joy because you understand it. It is that statement. He has an eternal permanent priesthood going before the very throne 
And he is able to save ultimately, completely, perfectly, to the uttermost, all of those who draw near to God through him. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. No man draws near, draws near to God except through Christ. And he lives to make intercession. Please listen carefully to what I'm about to say. It's the most important part of this message. That word intercession carries with it the freight of meaning that is almost beyond our comprehension. When it says that he lives to make intercession for you, it does not mean that Jesus goes before the throne of God Almighty with your sin and my sin and hopes that on a counter-relationship, somehow he will be able to get mercy from the Father that you and I couldn't get. He doesn't come in with our sins in tow and acknowledge, yes, once again, I'm here with this basket of sins that John confessed yesterday. Same ones. And because of our relationship, I'm hoping you will extend mercy. I want you to be encouraged this morning that Christ intercedes for you in such a way that he doesn't ask for mercy. Do you know why? Because what he says instead that on account of my death, these sins are paid for already. You already crushed me for these. These past, present, future, even tomorrow when I show up with the same ones, still paid for. They all arrive with paid for stamped on them. My blood atoned for these. My resurrection proved that it was sufficient. My scream of the damned that it is finished means that it has been paid for once and for all. And so when he stands before the holy bench of the universe, he does not come pleading mercy. He comes with a case. And the case is absolutely ironclad and perfect. He comes boldly before the throne of grace too to get it because he bought it and because nothing can separate you from it. And so if you're in him, you need to know that he is daily, always interceding on behalf of your sin, covering it with his righteousness, his blood, his sacrifice, and that doesn't need mercy. Instead, he's the only being in the universe that can come before the Father and say, what I demand for this sinner is justice. Because the Father can execute justice. Why? Because every single one of those sins was paid for in totality when he crushed his son for it. Four, 
its climax of the argument. It was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifice daily. <laughs> Doesn't need to. First for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all. If you underline things in your Bible, this is screaming out to be underlined. Once for all. When was that justice secured? When he offered up himself. That's when it ended. Once and for all. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priest. But the word of the oath, the promise, the swearing of God which came later than the law, David wrote this after the Mosaic law was given, appoints a son. The word son means an equal. doesn't mean a subordinate. It means an equal of the same essence. This son, who has been made perfect forever, made complete his active and passive righteousness, perfectly lived out, And he has been made this way, as we saw a few weeks ago, through what he learned in his incarnation, that he might apply that redemption to saved sinners forever. His blood will forever be pleading his righteousness, covering and making acceptable those who have put their faith in him. Only Christ is greater than religion. That's my first takeaway. Only Christ is greater than religion. Any system, anything that would cause you to believe that you could be made right with him because of what you do. Christ is greater than men. The most righteous of priests are going to fail us. They're going to stumble and fall. They're sinners themselves. Aaron gets left alone for a few minutes and he turns out a golden calf. Don't put your hope in men. He's greater than religion. He's greater than men. But you know what? He's even greater than you and your flesh and your perpetual failings and your repeated episodes of growing lazy and cold. Because as he said in Matthew 28, 20, after declaring that he had been given authority over everything, and all authority had been given to him, he said, behold, I am with you to the very end. And he will never leave you and never forsake you. As the band makes their way up, I thought it would be appropriate to end by reading these words to you from one of my favorite hymns, 135 in the hymnal, O worship the King, it says this, O worship the King, all glorious above, and gratefully sing His wonderful love, our shield and defender, the Ancient of Days, pavilioned in splendor and girded with praise. 
O tell of his might, O sing of his grace, whose robe is the light, whose canopy space, his chariots of wrath, the deep thunderclouds form, and dark is his path on the wings of the storm. Thy bountiful care, what tongue can recite? It breathes in the air, it shines in the light. It streams from the hills, it descends to the plain, and sweetly distills in the dew and the rain. Frail children of dust, and feeble as frail, in thee do we trust, nor find thee to fail. Thy mercies how tender, how firm to the end. Our maker, defender, redeemer, and what? Friend. Amen. Amen. Father, we thank you for this majestic truth laid out for us in this amazing passage of Hebrews. And I pray that today would be the day when once and for all we take to heart the truth that you are the great fulfillment of everything that this priest king looked forward to. And that those who have not yet actively put their faith in you would do so today. For your glory and for their eternal good. In your name we pray. Amen.